Hey, so I'm recording this outside, so it sounds kind of weird. But first of all, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Major Revisions. I just wanted to give you a quick note. Punctuality's not been my strong suit lately. Been a little behind, so it took some while. You know, it took a while to get this episode up and, and mixed. But we talk about some things like March Mammal Madness and March Madness. And, well, it's April 10th now. So, sorry about that. Congratulations, Team Shortface Bear. Neanderthal Party next year. Anyway, enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Socks. Yeah, man. Get the good. Get the good goddamn socks. socks. Good boots. Get get the get the wool. Get the polypropylene liners. Yeah. Do it. Yeah, that's footwear is my take home of where I did not appreciate enough. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Major Revisions. I'm Grace Wilkinson, assistant professor at Iowa State University. And with me as always is John Walter from University of Kansas. How's it going today, John? Just peachy. Excellent. And also joining me is Jeff Atkins from Virginia Commonwealth University. How are things, Jeff? Going great, Grace. Going great. All right, I was kind of expecting you to grumble a little bit, so I'm glad to hear that things are going well. <laughs> so, Jeff, do you have an update for us on the March Mammal Madness, which is the way cooler version of March Madness, for those of you who didn't hear our last episode? Yeah, so since two-thirds of us um, have no vested interest anymore in the NCAA basketball tournament, this is taking center stage now. Um, it appears, I think the Neanderthal hunting party that I voted on, just like Villanova, seems to be out of the running, but I have not confirmed this 100%. However, the, the, the Are you Capuchin, calling Villanovans Neanderthals? Look, I put, <laughs> let's clarify that gambling is wrong, okay? And I actually did not put any money on this year, but um, a long time ago, I lost in a tournament because Villanova, like if Villanova had just gotten to the final four... Like, I would have um, finished, like, second or something in, like, this big office pool, and it would have been awesome, right? But because wherever they lost, I ended up finishing fourth, and so I swore I would never, ever pick Villanova ever again till this year. And that was, like, a decade ago. So <laughs> I feel betrayed. Um, nothing personal against Villanova. They're fine people, I'm sure. But, um, wait, no, wait, Neanderthal Hunting Party nope. is still in. They just defeated Giraffe, so I think we're all three still in it. So Short Phrase Bear. Nice, nice. Neanderthal Hunting Party, and uh, currently the Leopard Cat is fighting the Seed Hog Deer. So, and how um, about the White Face Capuchin? White Face Capuchin is in and has been, I think, destroying, actually. I told you. Um, the Giraffe did take out You're one right. of the Neanderthals in the party, um, apparently with a kick to the head. Oh. <laughs> so I like it. Yeah, yeah. It's fierce. Oh, the giraffe was killed. I think with a hole through its neck, splintering a vertebra. Ah. Uh, hmm. Just how PBS will go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that seems to be dev day. I think we're all three. Um, all three of us are actually still in it to win it. And uh, yeah, go science. What round are they on? Oh gosh, where are we at now? We are. Um, 
it's kind of complicated to follow because you have to follow like a whole like um basically like a tweet storm <laughs> to figure out where you are in anything and each battle has like several tweets to it so we are on march 20th this is round two uh so this is basically the um this is going into the sweet 16 all right so kind of uh about the same place the ncaa would have been this weekend excellent i like it yeah but the actual show today, guys, is since it's about summer, or at least it's that time of the year where, uh, particularly if you are a grad student or um, you know, you're doing field work, you're planning that summer field work season. So we wanted to kind of do, basically, how do you design and do an ecological field experiment? This was uh, this was John's idea, so I'm going to let John take away the introduction on this. Uh, yeah, so it's weird that I picked this, because <laughs> I mostly do theoretical and quantitative ecology. Um, you did that one field but experiment. But once upon a time... <laughs> what, once upon a time... And by once upon a time, I mean for three consecutive summers during my PhD. Uh, I ran field experiments on gypsy moth flight mating or flight behavior in uh, different habitats. And I'm actually helping to coordinate a field campaign on uh, cicada calling this summer. Um, So maybe that had me, that had me thinking about this again. Um, But yeah, so we just wanted to talk about some of the issues as people who have run field campaigns before that we've run into and, um, you know, things that might help a listener, especially, um, a grad student listener who might be, uh, designing a field experiment or running a field campaign for the first time to get off the ground and make this first field season successful. Yeah, so I was going to say that in itself can sometimes be a tall order because we all know one of the maybe only things you can depend upon when doing a field experiment is that something's going to go wrong. But I think we're going to get to talking about those things and how you try to prepare for them a little bit later. So what do you guys want to start with? Yeah, it takes a lot of organization, I think, to really pull this off, particularly if you're like a master's student and you get like one shot, you know? That's uh Yep. Yeah. I know we have a problem with that with our master's students basically get like one summer to pull everything off. So um Yeah, I guess you just want to start from the order we have and just go through it. Yeah. Um so first is forming the hypothesis, right? Like you need to know what question are you even interested in asking? And um once you have that, basically, you formed your hypothesis, you figure out whatever it is you want to test, you need to figure out where are you going to do it at? Like, where are you going to do your field work at? And a lot of that sounds like you have, there's some kind of natural stuff built in. Like, a lot of us, and we've all been stationed at different field stations during the summer. Um, you know, John, you were at Blandy for a couple of years, right? And Grace, you were up at Undurk in Wisconsin slash yeah. Michigan. Um, and I've bounced around a little bit. But if you, you know, if you already have a nice situation where you're stationed somewhere that's great right you seem to usually usually have a lot of logistic stuff kind of already laid out and a lot of things are already answered for you 
um, that can get a little hairy if you need, if you're doing like a, I'm trying to think like what would be, I mean there could be definitely different, if you're not at a field station this becomes much more of a logistical nightmare, I think. Um, trying to give a good Absolutely. example of that though. Like who so, do you know who's done that? Well, Go for it. Sorry, go ahead, Grace. Well, I, I was just going to bring up the um, idea of when you're doing surveys or monitoring work, that is tends to be without a field station sort of a situation. So, like, what we're getting ready to do here in Iowa is we're gearing up for the 131 lake survey that happens in the state of Iowa every summer. And so that's visiting each one of those lakes individually. And so a lot of the things that we have to start thinking about is how are we going to get there how fast can you do those sorts of things? Um, what sort of boats do you need? How big are the lakes? Where are the boat launches mm. in relation to the sampling site, right? So there's just like all this whole yeah. extra layer of thinking about that kind of stuff that could really shoot you in the foot if you're not thinking about it. Yeah, that's true for the, when I worked for the SWAS program, every year we would do like the annual survey, which did like a, you know, maybe like a hundred different stream samplings sites. And then I never got to do one of the decadal one where you basically sampled every stream in West Virginia, Maryland, and Virginia. But even like the yearly ones, you're right. Like we had this giant binders, you know, and each one had like a folder for each individual site. And they had like the logistics of how to get there and the GPS coordinates and where to pull off. And then we got to the point where we were hiring undergrads and uh, basically giving them teams and like UPS, right? Like trying to divide up where the most optimal routes are to get the most streams in in the day. It gets to be... Yeah, it can be a logistical challenge, especially if it's not something that you've ever done before, I think. but Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, something that I would add is just the ability to have multiple home bases can be really, um, can be really helpful. So about more than half of the field sites that I used during my dissertation were away from Blandy, and one of them was close enough that I was able to, you know, use Blandy still as my home base and just um, drive down there. Um, my my experiments involved rearing uh, gypsy moths in the lab, and so I needed to have a place to store them. So I was, you know, partly limited to, you know, places that I had access to, um you know, where, where I could do that. So I ended up, uh, I ended up having a, a site near Charlottesville where I just reared them in my apartment. Uh, <laughs> um, which was, which was fun. Um, yeah, I wasn't dating anyone then, which was probably really helpful Wait, so uh, because they did You were the weird bug guy who was rearing bugs in his apartment and single. Uh, yes, that was me. <laughs> this is the second time that John's dating life has come up on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, this please w- continue about your bug rearing in your apartment. No, no, if you know John personally, that makes it even funnier to imagine John as the weird bug guy who keeps bugs in his apartment. <laughs> but I did. No, I mean, I no, no, it's cool. I have I have soil samples in on the bottom of my freezer right now underneath some carrots, so like I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not one to judge. I hear yeah, I got deuterium water samples in my fridge. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that there are still gypsy moth scales in the fridge 
of my old apartment. <laughs> Look, one one of the I think the key aspects that I think a good really any good scientist has is is that resourcefulness and creativity and you're going to find this with field work right especially if you've never done it that you know you're going to get weird stuff that's going to come up and you just got to roll with it and figure it out and that's you know if it's raising gypsy moths in your apartment or whatever you do what you got to do absolutely yeah or what happens when there have been multiple bear sightings <laughs> in your plot we'll get to the yeah we got safety coming up but yeah good for it <laughs> <laughs> well no when you say that jeff i i have a, a strict rule of thumb that sort of evolved during my dissertation that i do not go out to do field sampling without a utility knife mm-hmm. and a roll of duct tape and I, sometimes doing limnological research that means because the utility knife is serving as ballast and the duct tape is holding it on to whatever sample thing needs mm-hmm. to be weighted down but yeah those two things have pretty much saved me from most field sampling disasters i actually carry electrical tape yeah. more often than duct tape because i also find that electrical tape works really well for emergency like wounds and the mm. you can wrap it well enough that it won't uh, it's also like the glue inside won't really damage tissue so much like it doesn't get stuck in it as much as duct tape but duct tape probably works better with the water though so yeah, that makes sense. It's a necessary evil. Yeah, no, I always carry like a pocket knife and probably, um, yeah, I would, but I also like, I used to teach wilderness survival back in the day, so it's just probably what I would do anyway. Like I always carry like a pocket knife. Um, I usually have like a multi tool or something, uh, something to start a fire, um, all kinds of random things. Like I just kind of carry them anyway, and I think it's. I mean, depending on where you work, right? Like, it's different in some places. I've, most of my field work has been really remote areas. And so it's just been kind of up to me anyway. And, um, but I think, I mean, that's probably true for a lot of people. So, I don't know. But yeah, you gotta yeah, be I mean, prepared. When I'm, in the f- when I'm in the field, I always carry a first aid kit and a thermal blanket and a knife and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. I think one thing that we haven't had to deal with logistically, but I know a lot of people do, is when you work internationally, how do you get your sampling supplies and things to that international location? Oh and God. thinking about having to pay import taxes. and um, So I know someone who recently did a summer's field work in the Little Cayman. Uh, I know him because I'm married to him. And... <laughs> <laughs> the thing that blew my mind is he had to have everything prepared to go to ship on a boat to the island months beforehand. And because Little Cayman has one general store with maybe a couple of items in it, he had to have things down to the last roll of duct tape, the last roll of lab tape, every sandwich baggie he was going to need for samples, thought out yeah. and prepared. Wow. To the point yeah. that the only wow. thing he messed up on was... Uh, Robert, when I was coming down to visit, he Amazon primed me a pack of pencils to bring down to him. <laughs> <laughs> he figured it all out except for the pencils. But I, that's a whole so new I level of with, organization and having to planning. Yeah? I could never do that. No, I, I worked with Bill Keen and John Maven on building the aerosol mobile laboratory. Um, they offered me a chance to go on the ship, but I turned that down. But it was basically just like a mobile aerosol laboratory that was inside of a storage container, and it sits on um, like a boat, and <laughs> basically just goes across, right? But um, 
it got there was a an issue at one point where the container got moved to another boat and then I think like set in dock for three months in the Ivory Coast just sitting there <laughs> and like nobody could get their lab <laughs> just <laughs> kind of got rerouted and, um, yeah just sitting there um, so international field works I'm glad I don't have to do it <laughs> I'll leave that to you and Robert mm, I love Robert let's just leave that to Robert or, or we um I think it was Abby or somebody we know um, who had to bring soil samples back through customs and was just the worst, Sounds like Abby. The worst experience ever. And, and yeah, they just they sit there. For, I mean, because you're taking foreign soil into the country, right? And so there's just paperwork after paperwork and permits and everything else. And yeah. yeah. Good luck on that. I don't have that level of organization. So, thinking about all the stuff that goes into it, right? So, we've talked a lot about um, some of the, like, items that you need and the physical restraints and things like that. Permits? Permits. Yeah. You permits. You need permits. Permits are important. So, you gotta I didn't also have to keep track of time. You have to keep track of time schedules when you're dealing with multiple sites, because I screwed that up last year, and I missed a field site, because I they had a... Uh, the permit had to be in like three months before every other field station. Um, so yeah, keeping your permits and stuff in order is really important and making sure, because a lot of these places, if you work multiple places, John, you can attest to this, like you have to write basically different reports. You owe data to these people. Like there's a lot of stuff that comes in. And if you don't get stuff met in certain time schedules, you're not getting your field work done that year. Um, so if you are stationed at one place, and that's where your field work's going. You're at a really good... It's really advantageous to you. <laughs> so I highly recommend that, if that's an option. Absolutely. I Well, and even if you're doing some large ecosystem scale or even smaller scale manipulations, being at a private place like where I did my dissertation was really advantageous for that because I didn't have to get permits for dumping nutrients into a lake or things like that. Mm. But in other places you would. So. Oh yeah, experimental manipulations are a huge thing. Yeah. How far how far ahead did you guys have to plan manipulations, Grace? Um I guess it really de- would depend on the manipulation and how we were going to carry it out, but at least a year or so in advance. So the um like I guess the one experimental portion where I did a carbon isot- stable isotope addition to the middle layer or what's called the metalimnion of the lake for one Mm -hmm. of my dissertation chapters took more than a year and a half of planning um, just to mostly figure out how to get that into the middle layer of the lake but um, which I turned an entire laboratory bright pink but that's another story for another day Um, (laughs) 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 but uh, yeah so they they take a lot of planning because you have to we actually one of the things we ran into when we were trying to order the nutrients for doing the lake addition like the nutrient addition to the lake was um we wanted to add ammonium nitrate, but that's somewhat of a controlled sus- um, substance, as you can imagine, because it's used in bombs. And uh, <laughs> so uh, we're kind of certain that one of our technicians is now on a like terrorist watch list because he was calling around to a bunch of places asking them if they had pure ammonium nitrate and how much he could get his hands on. <laughs> 
as much as you can give me, please. <laughs> but it took us about a year to find enough ammonium nitrate to be doing these additions. Holy... How I'm not, never mind. I'm not even going to ask. That's <laughs> knowledge I don't need to know. I don't need to know. The um, phosphorus was easy. That I would so say. <laughs> Ironically, that's the one with greater regulations in the actual yes. environment. Of <laughs> so... So that yeah, so get our hands on, yeah. So it's definitely important to to have your timing down, right? To know when you're going to do this stuff, and if you're doing these manipulations, you're already too late listening to our podcast because you should, unless you're planning this for 2018. Um, yeah, because a lot of those things take a really long time scale. I know some of the work that we've done in, in Michigan, like those those controlled burns that they do, are planned out like years in advance because you're not only coordinating with, um, you know, the people like implementing your experiment but you're coordinating with like timber companies to come harvest the timber and then you're coordinating with other people to come and do the burns so whenever you're doing manipulations that gets to be really challenging can i ask but, something for a second yeah go sorry, ahead. sorry that just made me think john you were working with and rearing an invasive species did you run into a lot of permitting <laughs> or issues in that regard yeah so i was kind of lucky because i'm within the the quarantine zone of the gypsy moth, the species that I was working with. Um, so basically that's just the area that's already infested. And, um, so I, I had to go through USDA to get permits to rear and release gypsy moths. Um, and I had to do experiments outside of the season where the, um, wild populations are active in order to, um, prevent mating between um, wild gypsy moths and experimental gypsy moths. Um, but that really wasn't all that restrictive to my work. Um, what's probably a greater restriction is that I have colleagues that um, are interested in, in gypsy moth work that are outside of the quarantine zone and and they need to you know, be working in, you know, quarantine laboratories and stuff like that. And that's, um, a much bigger logistical challenge. So within the quarantine zone, you can pretty much do whatever you want. Well, with the USDA's permission, um, huh. and at least if you want to get lab reared gypsy moths, okay. um, cause you have to get them from the USDA. Um, so they have a pretty good idea of what your permit status is and stuff like that. If you want to just work with wild populations, um, you know, you wouldn't have, um, a big deal, uh, as long as you're within the quarantine zone. Interesting. I learned something today. That's cool. I never knew there were yeah, kind but of restrictions. Bigger message. If you work on an invasive species... Do think about whether or not your your area has already been invaded, because it probably matters. So basically, so, planning a field experiment is really about just massive organization. Is really the take home so far? Yeah, well, absolutely. I, I I was told at the beginning of my dissertation that the key to being successful in ecosystem eco experimental and field ecosystem ecology was being organized. Would you guys agree? 
Yeah. I think that's definitely yes. a key component. Yeah. The other thing I'd add is being creative. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. All right, so... And then... Oh, yeah, go, go for it. I was going to say, let's see. I was going to say, the other component... <laughs> no, no, go, go, go. <laughs> I was going to say, the other component is having good help. Oh, man. Let's talk help, then. Let's do that. Okay. Let's do that one next. We'll go back to the other stuff here. Um... So where do you even start with this? Okay, so let's assume that we're at the field station role. Um, so a lot of time at field stations, have you you guys have all advised REU students, right? Yes. Yep. Okay, so if listeners are not familiar, the NSF runs a program called Research Experience for Undergrads. And uh, what it is is it's a really excellent program. I can't really speak highly enough of it. And undergrads will get to come... You know, but they basically apply to a program they want to work at, and they will come, usually live at that field station, and get guidance from a mentor, typically an advanced grad student or a faculty or a postdoc, and they will usually devise an experiment that's, sometimes it kind of fits in to a larger project, uh, sometimes they will pick, not necessarily can projects, but projects that uh, are kind of outlined a little bit, but have some room for creativity. But they basically get a project. The project becomes their own. Um, they're responsible. Uh, at least in my experience at Blandy, when I did this, it was really kind of free frame. The student I worked with, he, you know, he and I sat down and we devised an experiment, um, and he kind of implemented it and did all of it. Did all the ordering and planning, all this. But you do all of it in like a ten to twelve week time. So they have to design an experiment implement the experiment, do the experiment, do the analysis, and then do the write-up and get that. And it works really well if you're... I don't advise doing this if you're like a first or second year grad student, but if you're a more advanced grad student in REUs, I think a good thing to do. Not only does it give you your kind of mentorship experiment, or mentorship experience, rather, but you can basically work on an experiment with this really eager, really engaged student that will also contribute to your own research. So you end up having this like really great kind of synergistic relationship where you're helping them, they're helping you, and it works out really well. And so I think that's kind of one avenue that you can get help. The other avenue, or well, there's multiple avenues. Um, one is you can just outright hire people. What has been you guys' experience with hiring people during the summer? Yeah, so I've hired a person. Um, it's kind of a surreal experience, first of all, like... You know, as an early career person, hiring a person that is, you know, exactly where you were a few years ago um, to, to help you. But, you know, beyond that, you know, I think it's a really good experience. Um, and, you know, I was lucky to get, um, you know, a really good student with a lot of skills and um, that, you know, that were needed to, to, you know, get a project off the ground and, you know, who is really hardworking and motivated. And I don't think that's unusual though. You know, I, I think that the kind of people who, um, who look for these types of positions and are, are successful in getting them are, are often really high quality students and, um, you know, do really good work. Grace, what about you? Have you absolutely? Have you had um, 
what's been your experience with hired technicians? Yeah, so uh, I had recently been sort of counting this up, which is why I know this number off the top of my head. So over the past seven years with the Cascade Project at UNDERC, I've worked with 24 undergraduate students, and I was involved in, I guess, I think 22 of their hirings. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Yeah, so, and I, you know, I've had just amazing experiences with all of them, and um I think it was um, eye-opening to me at the beginning, but it's been nice to know, you know, some of them, they had a really great experience, but limnology or ecology wasn't what they were going to go on to do, but they certainly Mm -hmm. learned a lot from it, Um, and I certainly learned a lot from mentoring them, and they were great students at the time. Um, I think it's, it's good, it's easy in that situation because you're enticing people to come work in the middle of the northern forest on lakes, beautiful, pristine lakes. Um, and just sort of get lost for three months. So uh, we, we tend to have a pretty large pool of people that apply. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I, I think we've published with five of those undergraduate students, some of them leading their own papers, oh, six, six of them. And so, yeah, it can really be an awesome opportunity. And when we, we and, uh, end up identifying those students that um, really want to take it farther, it's a great opportunity if they can take that project that they've been working on on the side and turn it into something that's actually a publishable unit. Um, and so there definitely is that opportunity. Yeah, for the record, you can also get really good applicant pools for doing quantitative ecology in the middle of Kansas. That so. is good to know. <laughs> <laughs> I am currently job. looking for applicants to come sample lakes in Iowa. Just plug in that right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm currently yeah, in the it's... process of hiring ten undergraduates. So, ten. Yeah. Whoa. Hot damn. Or what I refer to as my army of limnologists. <laughs> <laughs> so Jeff. Wow. How about you and undergraduates? Um, it's been re- it's been really good. I've had the, with the ones that we've hired. I feel like we've had a lot of uh, a lot of good success. I'm interesting that my a lot of mine have went on outside of the field of ecology or towards more applied work. So I don't know what that says about me. Um, only one of them actually went into like, research. So I, apparently I turned people away. Um, one teaches Taekwondo now. Um, one is a tour guide. Uh, one works for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, and, well, no, a couple other ones are actually doing kind of more applied stuff. But it's definitely... I don't know, it's a fun experience. I really enjoy it. And um, I've had some really, really good ones. You get to meet a lot of really exciting people. I mean, they, I don't know, they're just really engaged. They're young. They haven't been jaded yet. They're still excited about things. <laughs> so it's kind of it's fun. <laughs> so, I think we're taking another REU student at Michigan this summer, so I'm excited to do it, do it again. I had a, a year off. Well, I had a technician last year, but she was... Uh, uh, transitioning, she was just needing. She had finished a master's and was just kind of looking for something, to, you know, work for the summer. Uh, but uh, I already knew her ahead of time, so it was like hiring one of your friends to basically hang out with you for the summer. Um, <laughs> I, I have. I want to relate experience to you first, and then ask your opinion on this uh, about volunteers or. Uh, when I was at UVA, we you occasionally run into students who wanted to kind of bolster their resumes or whatever with some type of research experiment experience, and a lot of times you get really engaged people, and then sometimes it can go the other extreme, right? And so, like my very first experience here was a was a student 
Um, he was really into opera, which was cool. And he was really into learning Japanese, but he wanted to learn Japanese because he wanted to just talk to girls and try to impress them that he spoke Japanese. And the weirdest thing, though, was, like, he would carry a bayonet with him, like, into the woods, like, attached to his backpack because he was afraid of bobcats. And he was just, like, a really weird dude. And it wasn't necessarily the most positive experience, I think, for either of us because he didn't really want to do anything. But he just wanted to follow me around for the summer. (laughs) And that was kind of my very first experience with that. So I think for like a year after that, I didn't really want to take on volunteer students because I was a little bit weirded out about it. Um, But what do you... uh, Have you guys uh, had similar experiences or am I on on the lonely island here? Is this just a me thing? Um... I don't know if I've had a similar experience as in someone carrying a bayonet into the woods, but... Um. <laughs> it was a World War II bayonet, I should mention. It was his grandfather's, and he was convinced <laughs> the bobcats were his primary worry. But anyway. Oh, and how wrong he was. Um, <laughs> I'd say the bayonet is it should be his primary worry. Um, so, I don't know, John, have you had any? Um, so I've had a couple experiences with short-term volunteers, and they've all been pretty positive. Like, you know, someone comes out to help me set up a field site and maybe sample for, um, you know, a day or two. But, you know, any any long-term experience, you know, long-term relationship with, um, with a, a student... Um, has been either either paid or you know part of like a senior thesis project or something like that and so i think that i think that changed the dynamic a little bit for sure i'm glad to hear you say that you've had positive experiences with short-term volunteers because i was a short-term volunteer for you once (laughs) (laughs) i have had i have had this was the only (laughs) negative experience i've had i have had many excellent volunteer uh help um now i typically yeah you you volunteered to go up like in the snow too and it was like horribly cold it was awesome the uh the garage that's i don't think it's there anymore sadly um so i should say oh you helped me with the mimosa tree project i did help with the mimosa tree project in our first year of grad school first month of grad school what was the the mimosa project um so this is Basically, a project that I I didn't lead, but I ended up helping to sample, and somehow I managed to wrangle Grace into coming to help me, um, you know, do a day of sampling up at Blandy. Um, it was cut down by the time that that you were up there, Jeff. But we used to have um, a plot of mimosa trees in that area um, by like. Um, you know, towards Route 50 from the uh, from the lab and the like, uh, Ty's greenhouse area. See, I okay. just heard mimosa. Uh, that's why I came along. <laughs> you got up there and you're like, yeah. Unfortunately, this is not what I thought. Unfortunately, it wasn't the drink, but we did we did have a, our fair share of those throughout grad school. We did. <laughs> so. 
I think this does bring up like kind of a um, yeah. In general, like I think short volunteer stints are totally cool, um, but this is my my minor soapbox, and I, I won't stay on it very long. But if you are trolling through Ecolog right now, say you're an undergrad, you're looking through those listings of these people who are asking for volunteer research assistance, and you're having to like pay them to go work for them. No. Don't do no. it. <laughs> That's a, it's basically a scam, and you should pay your help. I understand like short volunteer things, or if someone's getting experience for a class, or it's an internship. Eh, I don't know. I've done internships. Maybe that's even questionable. But you should pay your help. Pay them something. I you know I I don't I don't I don't advocate for for slave labor in field work or ecology. There's even research, and we'll post this on the website, saying that this is bad for ecology and it makes bad science. It skews your results. And it's also you're not paying them, and that's wrong. Okay, I'm done. So, well, <laughs> no, I don't disagree with you, but I, I think there's another another shade of that that's called citizen science. Yeah, no, totally different things, right? Like I'm talking about like yeah, like unpaid technicians, citizen sciences, and bioblitz or citizen science, bioblitzes, all that stuff. Amazing, totally in support of that. Um, yeah, just want to make that differentiation that there's. No, absolutely. I completely agree with you. And if you're thinking, well, but that's what I really want to do, um, like let's say it's hugging orangutans in the jungle, uh, there's probably A, another way to do that, or B, another way to get a similar experience where you are being paid because C, you're probably going to find out that you don't really like it anyways. And I guess I, I shouldn't really be shaming the people who want to do it. And that's not my intention. It should be the people who's not paying. Um, because it's really a question of class and privilege, I think. You know, I I don't mm. come from a background where I could have taken off a summer and just gone to volunteer to do something. Um, and if you if you have the ability to do that, cool, more power to you. Um, but I think it, it it's one of those things that it's it it makes it more difficult for people who are not as advantaged to get into science unnecessarily. It's a, a barrier that shouldn't have to be there. That is a you good point. I had not thought of that. Thank you you shouldn't have. Out. You shouldn't have to volunteer like super extra hours. I had to do, um, you know, for me to get like into grad school, I was basically working a job, but having to figure out how the hell to get research experience, and so I had to like take an extra internship on top of the forty hours I was already working on top of the classes that I was taking to, to get that. And, you know, the people I was working with were really cool and really flexible about it. Um, but yeah, like not everyone has like unlimited resources. I think, you know, making these really cool, attractive things where you go to far-flung places and play with cute animals, and the research is interesting, right? But you should pay people. That's you should factor that into your grants. You should pay people. Yeah, you know, I I know people who have done experiences like that, and I don't think that they're that they're actually experiencing real science. Like, I, I, I think that they're, you know, that there are also examples of those types of programs that are totally exploitative. They're not really about the science. They're about, like, basically extracting money from people. Um, and I think that that's really shitty, too. Yeah. I mean, and sure. 
we are not alone. Like this is commonplace in a lot of other industries. Like if you look at a lot of professional sports, like if you want to work in front offices, you're basically going to starve for a couple of years. Um, and I don't think that's right either. You know, <laughs> like the film industry, sure. uh, a lot of artwork, um, if you play music, I think it goes back to kind of Grace what you pointed out earlier. Like you want to get the bre- the best and the brightest, not necessarily just the people who can weather the most. Even though that yeah that is an important skill as well, but I think it's an unnecessary barrier. So yeah, that's an excellent point. But anyway, that said, um, <laughs> you know, like there are volunteer opportunities that you know are totally legit and work out really well. Particularly, like you said, this is, you know the citizen science stuff is really great. If you look at models like the National Phenology Network, which is basically just people who are really excited to take pictures of flowers, uploading their pictures of flowers to a website that you can then collate the data from. Um, it's yeah. a little bit different. And yeah. I think that ornithologists have really been able to leverage that as well with bird sightings and yeah. building maps and things like that. And yeah, like the Christmas bird count and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah yeah I mean I think I think if you're a student and you're thinking about this kind of opportunity you know if you are you know getting to have an ex like an experience that is like relatively cheap in terms of well really ideally free in terms of money and cheap in terms of time and it's it's getting to do something that you really are passionate about and and you think is going to help you get to the next level that's a totally legit thing to do oh yeah you know if you're doing something that is you know exploiting your money or your time then there are probably better opportunities out there for you that are going to you know, get you to where you want to be, um, in a, in a much better way. And I think the important thing too, is if you're, if you're listening to this and you're kind of new to designing experiments, like there's a difference between being a mentor, being an advisor and, you know, being like a boss, right? Like if you have a technician, that's one thing, your technician works for you and you pay them and that's cool. But if you're you're mentoring someone on a project, and even if the project's related to yours, right? Like they're helping you, you're helping them. They need to have a vested interest in that project, and they need to take ownership of it. So you don't need to be they don't need to be your lab monkey. You know what I'm saying? Like they're not there to run the pipette. They're not there just to run the gas analyzer or whatever. Like they need to be engaged and involved in that project. And part of that that onus is on you to be the mentor. Um, and you know that can be hard if you've never done it it's not a natural thing necessarily Um, it's a skill like any other that can be learned and you practice and you constantly try to get better at to help them get engaged into that project but a little aside there it's a good point though so more concrete things for the student here that we're talking about going a little bit back to organization um, is equipment and I guess what I wrote this on here was thinking about availability 
is particularly like shared equipment, right? Um, we talked about Blandy, this is the Blandy experimental farm, which we've all like had experience at one point. And there, there are two. Uh, it's a very large place, so there's two Gators, which are basically like these four-wheeled kind of off-road vehicles, which are great fun to drive. But there's only two, and there's like you know 20 people who need to use them. So this is just kind of one example of like a shared resource that you need to plan on, right? Um, like, are you going to have access to that whenever you need your experiment? Is your experiment, you know, time sensitive? Um, I don't know, John, you've had kind of more experience with that. Like, I think I found most of the time I didn't really have an issue with getting resources there and everyone kind of respected the schedule. But do you ever have any overwhelmingly positive or negative experiences there? Um, not in terms of that, but, you know, as a, as someone who was there as a graduate student, I had a vehicle uh, and, you know, that did just fine for getting around. I know that it was a bigger deal for some of the, you know, RU students who didn't have vehicles. Um, we had some international students and, and well, I guess I'm, I'm, st I'm still bad at deciding whether Puerto Rico is international or not. <laughs> Um, it's not really, but, um, but it still seems like it is sometimes. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you know, there, there were students there that, you know, that didn't have vehicles and getting to Gators was a bigger deal for them than for me. Although the whole facility is 700 acres, so it's not like you couldn't walk there. It'd just be a pain in the ass. Yeah, if you had to like carry stuff around, it was like the limiting kind of issue, I think, for some. Yeah, Grace. What about you? What was the well? Uh, if you're able to, if you're able to drive a you know 1974 <laughs> Ford pickup where you have to pull the clutch back out with your foot, uh, you know, just hook your hook it with your toe, then you're totally fine because no one else can drive it. Trust me, because I did it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but. But since most people can't drive a stick shift anyway, uh, I think that that's an unfortunately moot point. <laughs> Great, Grace, what was the limiting factor for you? Was it the, yeah. like boat, boat access? Um, yeah, so I guess thankfully where, where I was working is we had boats on every lake because it was a private property, so we could just leave them there. And the, we rented vehicles from the University of Wisconsin's fleet system, so that worked really well. Um, and so rarely there was an instance where we had a boat or a car access issue. Um, but, you know, that can often be an issue. I know, like, the Virginia Coast Reserve, so that's a place that none of the three of us really ever worked at, I don't think, but where a lot of our fellow grad mates um, did. And they had to, like, schedule time to take the boat out because they had actual boat captains. Oh, and so, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and you had to pay for those boat trips. And so you really had to think about what are the maximum number of boat trips I need, and you have to plan with the tides. And can I work with somebody else to both go out at the same time so we can share the cost of this trip? And I, just, I feel lucky that I didn't have to think about those things, but a lot of the people I think that work in marine and coastal sciences do have to think about those things. Um, I guess another thing that kind of fits in to this category is uh, something that I've always had to deal with is about powering your equipment. Like if you have equipment that's electronic, you need to think about... Um, 
you know, if it is battery powered, like how long does your individual battery last? Do you need to buy batteries ahead of time and bring them? Um, you know, a lot of the equipment I had had to rig up with external battery packs just to make sure they lasted the day. Um, another thing that you think about is like, what if something breaks? Is it something that you can repair? Uh, you know, or is it something you need to send, you know, to send out? I remember repairing a, a gas ergo one time, like in the snow. It was one of these that had like these tube systems where you couldn't get water in it. And so I was trying to repair it like without physically being able to put it on the snow because then it would suck water into the thing and destroy it. And that was interesting. Um, I did get it fixed though. Uh, another thing, and hopefully you have an advisor or somebody that helps you with a lot of this stuff, but also is like calibrations, I think is something that, I don't know if you guys run into this, like you may, uh, Grace, you may have equipment that needs to be calibrated, but we have a lot of equipment that you know, requires annual calibrations. And depending on... I mean, it's totally hit or miss. Like, sometimes Campbell or some of these places can get it to you in three days. Sometimes it's six months. And you never really know <laughs> until yeah. you call and ask how long it's going to take. Um, so it's something to kind of think about. Um, Along those lines, I would say, on. you know, it, it's nice when the lab has standard operating procedures. Mm-hmm. And so sort of this institutional knowledge about that equipment and things because when you're walking in as a new grad student or even a new postdoc you don't necessarily know or have yeah. haven't used these instruments before or know about their care and feeding and so mm-hmm. that sort of stuff is really helpful so like right now I'm working through the QAP the quality assurance project plan for the project that I have with the Iowa DNR and I counted it up today there's 97 components to it So I'm right now thinking that this thing is the bane of my existence, but at the same time, it's going to have every little detail about calibration and validation and all that sort of it, how you turn the thing on, how you troubleshoot um, for every instrument that we have in our laboratory. And so it's it's ultimately a really useful thing, right? And so if you're stepping into a lab that has that, uh, you know, if you're a postdoc going into a new lab to use some of their equipment and work on a project, that would be a good thing to ask if they have. Oh yeah, it's shared lab equipment or any of that stuff is just it kind of fits in this vein too, right? Like you need to know how to use it, when you can use it, if you can use it, who yeah. do you have to pay if you have to pay? Um, one thing that should be said, and I, I would hope people do this anyway, is that you know the technicians, the people who work in these labs, if there are people there who you know kind of operate them, um, and this goes to like office people and everything too. Like, you should be nice to people anyway just because it's the right thing to be nice to people. Um, but it'd be a real bad idea to not be nice to those people. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, you bring yeah. them coffee, whatever it takes. Or marry them. Yeah. Marry That's them. That's what I did. <laughs> to make them US That's citizens. what I did. <laughs> that is one possible avenue. <laughs> But if you, coffee's just, good too. One of the, it's a, it's a it's a continuum like anything, but if you have those people, you make friends with them, and you have to. So, organization, time, your help. Uh, one kind of big question I think I should have thrown this earlier is the project that you have in mind, you need to really sit down and think, can you actually accomplish this project? Um, Mm -hmm. One of the ideas I think that may 
I mean, you gotta have. You may have a really good idea for a project, but you need to really just ask yourself and others too. Like, like don't you know? I can talk myself into pretty much anything, and I will always overestimate my ability to do it. You need to talk this out. Yeah, one thing. I, yeah, you know, sometimes you can't tell how hard something's going to be until you really get into it too. Yeah. Definitely. You know, so that makes that makes pilot work really important, um, and just the the ability to be flexible and, um, you know, try and anticipate problems. You know, what does happen if you can only get you know, half the number of replicates that you thought you could, you know, are you still going to be able to have a, a reasonable data set to ask the question that, that you want to ask? Or, you know, would that really sink your project entirely? You know, maybe if you're a PhD student and you've got, you know, three or four shots at a field season, that's less important. But if you're a master's student that maybe has one, uh, that's that's really critical and and this is something that you know you should think about and something that your advisor should be thinking about as well yeah john you saying that makes me think of a principle that they're talking about a lot now with like city and urban resilience that whether things are fail safe or safe to fail and i think the goal should always be to try to create a project that is safe to fail and try to think about you know the ways that it might fail and whatnot but just realize that it it really could and try to think of some of those big things and how you can still get a good data set and a good field season out of it like you were talking about john i guess one thing that is useful is just like thinking about the math of Mm -hmm. you know of all of it like for for me and my field work the limiting factor wasn't necessarily you know how many sites i could you know i could reach or you know if i could sample a you know, a, a large site in, in a day, it was how many gypsy moths were going to emerge uh, because, you know, they needed to be a certain age for me to release them um, in order to standardize the protocol. And so, you know, something that, that I didn't necessarily think about in the planning process was, well, you know, how many do I need to get shipped each week to have, you know, 200 emerging on the right day? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, at, you know, and that data exists, or, well, the, the data in order to do that calculation, at least to an order of magnitude approximation, exists. Um, but you know, I, I didn't think about it. It ended up slowing me down in my first field season and I didn't get as much out of it as I really wanted to. Um, and I had to really scale back some of my ideas in the next couple of field seasons in order to fit with the reality of, you know, what could I actually manage? Mm. So I think this is something we should follow up on. Um, that I think is a separate question, which is how to design a good experiment. Because we're, mm-hmm. we're really more talking about logistics of how to handle field work, but that's something we should really kind of get into, I think, is a, another question. But I think kind of on this, like, one thing that you can do is go ahead and write out your methods, like, and all the stuff, like, you would pr- 
presentation quality like you were going to submit the final manuscript of this project and one thing that's been suggested in other places is actually even making synthetic data that you would expect to get from the project and go ahead and like kind of outlining like the plots and everything that you expect to get from this project and I think some of the advantages of this is one that it lets you see some problems that you have in experimental design if you have to sit down and actually write the narrative of your methods and kind of look at what the expectations you're going to get you know which is very similar to you know if you're doing like a PhD you've probably already done something like this in a proposal but if it's something for a master's it may not have been as formal in um, kind of an outline but if you actually start to sit down and write this out you know really detailed and really have to think about kind of the narrative of it that can hopefully let you see some issues if there's any flaws that come out and I know one thing that I do and I even do this with class projects for my students is I have them do what's called a pre-mortem and the idea of it is you because no one wants to think about why they do you know why they messed up right but you give them the challenge of basically like okay it's the, actually the end of the project already and the project failed miserably why where did it go wrong and you give them the challenge actually of thinking you can do this to yourself of what are the things that went wrong with the project and you really try to start to detail out the Rumsfeldian view of ecology or field experiments of what are the you know kind of the known unknowns like why didn't this work and what happened mm. which I think kind of gets to kind of what you guys were talking about as well just trying to figure out you know safe to fail versus um, fail safe if you can really kind of think about everything that you can think of where it could go wrong and eliminate those as much as you can because you know there's things that you can't do right like if you you can't control for the weather um you can't control for um time constraints conflicting schedules or anything that happens with your help or anything like that but you can there are things that you can at least plan out and see what's going to happen yeah, yeah. The best you can so. Absolutely. And I think a large portion that goes into that along those lines, Jeff, is also um, thinking about, and, and John kind of touched on this, trying to actually model whether you're doing it with just fake data and plotting it out or actually trying to do some little bit of modeling with it or whatnot, but mm -hmm. that, that should actually help you be able to figure some of these things out. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, like you said, you got to be organized. you got to <laughs> really plan this out. You may only get one shot. Um, so, um, I guess the last thing we didn't really talk about was explicitly was like safety concerns. And this is one thing that's fascinating to me is that I had to sit in on a talk or a, a meeting one time at VCU and we were talking about safety at the field station that we have there. And some of the people were like, look, we can't do like OSHA level safety restrictions on this. These are people who do like nest studies of birds. They're like, how the hell are we going to set up, you know, like OSHA approved climbing apparatus to not disturb like some, you know, rare raptor bird or whatever. Like we have to climb up in the top of these 30 meter trees and check into these nests. And that's just kind of the nature of the, of the beast. But you know there's general safety stuff like if you, before you go into field work especially in remote areas you should have some basic first aid training like john said you should carry a first aid kit 
You should know what maybe the poisonous snakes look like. You should know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in my case, I've always dealt with a lot of rattlesnakes and a lot of bears. Um, you should know how to handle yourself around a bear. If you're working on the West Coast, you should at least have maybe an understanding of what happens right before the mountain lion attacks you because you're not going <laughs> to see it coming. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to go work in Puerto Rico, you should get your shots. Like, there's, you should you should take the necessary precautions and there will hopefully be people around you to know what they are for each individual area which you work in. Um, oh yeah, never feel um, bad about asking. Yeah, always ask. Always ask. I, another one I would bring up and has gotten a lot of press recently um, is Lyme disease. Know how to prevent oh, yeah. it, know what it looks like. Um, that's some very serious neurological damage if it goes untreated. Lyme disease sucks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, tick checks just generally. I mean, there's a lot of tick-borne diseases beside Lyme disease. Um, you know, be familiar with what's what's up in your area, and uh, you know, take you know, take the precautions. Like, you know, you might look a little bit extra dorky for tucking your socks into your field pants, but but for real, like, it's worth it. Yeah. And and I think there's going to be some basic things that you need to know as well, like. Your cell phone's not necessarily going to work in all these places, and it would probably behoove you to learn to read a goddamn map. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Yes. Like, have a printout, have it laminated, have it waterproofed. You need to know what to do in a storm. Um, yes. Yeah, that's the other thing that I always carry with me is a compass. Yeah, and you should also, like, your help... Um, Educate them too, because they're they're your responsibility. Um, they wouldn't be out there if it wasn't for you. So make sure they know what's going on too. I tackled a freshman one year, first year, or whatever we call them, because she was about to step on a rattlesnake one time because she didn't see it. And uh, wow. And still, I so, think it didn't really register to her like why I had knocked her down. I was like, you understand what that is right there, that angry little coil piece of rope, right? <laughs> She's, uh, she didn't want you to step on her, and she wasn't going to let you do that. <laughs> so, but. so, along those lines, I guess to just sort of wrap up here, what is the dumbest thing, or looking back on it, the thing that you've just gone, well, fuck, that was stupid, that you've done in a field season, whether experimentally, safety-wise, or whatever. Hmm. You know, I I think looking back on it, the amount of time that I spent alone in the field was really dumb. Like, people always knew where I was, approximately, but yeah, I spent a lot of time alone in the field and I think that you know, that's that's something that is not always avoidable given you know, time, money, and other logistical constraints, but you know, if if you can avoid being by yourself in remote places it's it's a good idea. I think the the dumbest thing I've ever done, and I've done some dumb things, um, 
was the, the first time I went to do um, some sampling in the area called Dolly Sods in West Virginia was that I didn't really take the ruggedness of the landscape into real consideration. I had never really been there and I wasn't completely prepared. I guess two things on this was one that when I went there, I, I wear chacos a lot during the summer because if you're going into that. So how'd that affect you? How'd that affect your like your your sampling and, and your experience? Well, there? so I, I wear chacos and I didn't bring boots, and so I was trig- had to go off trail, and I didn't really know what was there. I didn't bother to ask, I guess, and so I had to hike a mile through like these dry. I don't even know what you call them, like these brambly type. It was like basically stepping in like dry coral or something. And so I just shredded my feet and my legs to pieces for a mile in and a mile out because I didn't come prepared. And it was incredibly painful. <laughs> it's just, and I remember also like going the first winter and not really thinking about how cold it was and like almost getting frostbite and losing my toe because I just didn't come prepared. The moral of that story is that I own snow boots now, and um, I always carry my hiking boots, and I think that footwear is probably one area that you can't spend enough money in, and yeah. it's totally worth it. And um, Socks. Yeah, man. Get the good, get the good goddamn socks. socks. Good boots. Get, get, the, get the wool, get the polypropylene liners. Yeah. Do it. Yeah, that's, that's footwear is my take home of where I did not appreciate enough. Um so, yeah. And wear a hat with your favorite baseball team yeah. on it. And hope it's the Philadelphia Phillies. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'll share my stupidest moment really quickly before we wrap up here. I worked as a stream ecologist in California for a summer, and we had field notebooks that we would take out with us and write down. We were doing a ton of incubations and experiments. And so I had about two days worth of field data in my field notebook, and there was a strict rule that we were to copy our field notebooks on a Xerox machine every night. But I hadn't copied for two days. Put my field notebook in my pocket of my cargo pants. That's right, cargo pants. And decided to cross the river. Luckily, we found the field notebook about four hours later under a rock about a half mile downstream. Grace, I think I lost you there. All right. Oh, sorry. Okay. So uh, I guess that probably is a, a good place to wrap it up for the uh, the night. So thanks for listening. This has been Major Revisions, Episode 14. We've been talking about planning a field experiment and all the things that could possibly go wrong. And if you want to check us out, you can find us on iTunes. You can also find us on SoundCloud. And, Jeff, where are some of the other places that you can right. find Major Revisions? <laughs> I can you still hear me? And you guys? All right. Well, Jeff's gone. All right. Um, I think. Did you mention iTunes? I did. So. Oh, I think we're on Spotify now too. Excellent. And you can tweet us, but I don't check Twitter. Right. So uh, <laughs> you'll just have to redub over this ending because it's gotten long and really awkward. All right. Thanks for listening to Major Revisions. Hope to you join us again next time.